and welcome to Resilience, the global adaptation podcast, the show where we'll be exploring the best solutions and cutting edge technologies for adapting to climate change. From floating cities to flood resilient farms to forest seawalls, we're coming to you from the UN's Global Adaptation Network. I'm Liz Mullen Bernhardt. And I'm Marcus Neild. In our podcast, we'll be talking to the most renowned adaptation experts, but we'll also be traveling around the world, virtually of course, to meet people and communities on the front lines to learn about how they've built resilience on the ground. We're really excited to share some amazing climate success stories with you. Thanks for being here as we adapt to climate change one conversation at a time. Marcus, think about this for a second. Even if all the world's carbon emissions suddenly stopped overnight, the climate catastrophes that we're seeing today, wildfires, floods, hurricanes, won't be going away. Reducing emissions is essential, but it's no longer enough. We need to adapt and build resilience. And crucially, adaptation as a climate strategy is about to grow fast. World leaders are calling to increase funding for adaptation from roughly 10% of overall climate finance, where it is now, to 50%. That's a five-fold increase. So let's get started on this journey to resilience with the insightful and hopeful Professor Patrick Ferkuyan from the Global Center on Adaptation, which just so happens to be the largest floating office in the world. Talk about a cool adaptation strategy. Hello, Patrick. Welcome to Resilience. It's my pleasure, Marcus. I'm delighted uh, that I can appear in this very important uh, conversation. Everybody needs to join the conversation and transform that conversation into tangible action. A lot of the conversation so far around climate change has been about reducing our emissions. But why should people take adaptation seriously? In fact, we should do both, right? First and foremost, we need to reduce our carbon footprint. What was very clear in the IPCC report, the sixth assessment report, that we're dramatically off track in reducing our carbon footprint, the impacts of floods and fires and droughts and heat waves already here today under a 1.2 degree warmer world, let alone if the climate is spinning away as it is projected now on the different scenarios. So we have to reduce our uh, carbon footprint and decarbonize our economy. At the same time, given that what we also see today in all parts of the world, that the climate impacts are very severe, we need to adjust to these physical risks which are appearing in our lives. So it is not an either or matter. What we hear quite often is that, well, if you invest in adaptation, is that not defeat, giving up on lowering a carbon footprint? And I would say it's not. It's defense. It's the best form of defense. It's very smart investment to protect ourselves from risk which we're seeing and which we expect to, to increase over time. It's smart economics. Yes, there are investments involved. Yes, we need to pay upfront costs. But the return on those investments are very compelling. So there is a strong moral case, there is a human imperative, but there's also an economic case why we should do so. Not today or tomorrow and only the day after, but consistently across society. It's really interesting that you refer to the economics there. This is such an important point about adaptation, isn't it? We've seen some investments in in these kinds of solutions generating sometimes even $10 in total benefits for every dollar spent. I also think a lot of people don't understand the power of adaptation resilience in in saving lives. A fascinating example can be seen in Bangladesh. 
even though climate change has become more severe, the number of deaths from cyclones has fallen more than 10 times since 1970. Could you tell us a little bit about how Bangladesh has so effectively strengthened its resilience to cyclones? Yeah, so, so Bangladesh, that's a fascinating example. I travel to Bangladesh quite regularly, and I was there in, um, in 2019. So I met with Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina. This was a meeting of the Global Commission on Adaptation, where the question was, how can we scale adaptation action? So my question to her was, how is it possible that a cyclone in 1970 killed almost 500,000 people and a cyclone 50 years later of similar magnitude killed 14 or 18 people? I mean, much less. What have you been doing here in Bangladesh? And her answer was very straightforward. She said, we know that development and economic development and climate change, they go hand in hand. These are not two separate agendas, but we mainstream it into all our planning and investments. All line ministries, which are over 20, are given the mandate, whether it's in planning, whether it's in agriculture, whether it's in infrastructure, whether it's in nature and environment and forestry, to mainstream climate risk into the development planning. And it's interesting to see, if you look at the adaptation finance, in Bangladesh, 70% is coming from the national government in Bangladesh itself. What have you done then, I asked, in terms of reducing the impacts in Bangladesh? She said, well, we had a couple of very simple measures, quite frankly. What did we do? What we had to do across the globe? Mangrove restoration. In Bangladesh, mangroves were cut uh, for economic development, but knowing that the impacts were growing, mangroves, I mean, they took nature as the first line of defense back in, in Bangladesh. Secondly, they invested quite severely in early warning systems. They built cyclone shelters. So when that next cyclone then came, the loss of lives and livelihoods was much less impactful than it used to be in, in, in the years before. So my argument then is, should other countries not follow suit and, and learn from the Bangladesh uh, example? We have seen flash flooding in Europe over the summer. And it is interesting to see that, that Bangladesh offered support to, to Germany on, on how to evacuate uh, at scale. So we're now in an era which is not just north-south learning or south-south learning. We're now even in a reality that there is south-north learning. It is vital that we all learn from these examples, these best practices, and tailor them, obviously, to the specific context, and then scale them. Patrick, I think that that's an incredibly inspiring example. It reminds me of a conversation I had recently where we were talking about climate change, and someone said, well, you know, we're all in the same boat here. And then someone responded, well, actually, we're not all in the same boat, but we are all in the same storm, right? So <laughs> the way we're building that boat and the way we're adapting to it, we should learn from each other. But the, the role of political will that you mentioned is so key, uh, such as through the Global Commission. Yeah, can I just respond to that, yes. list? The question is, are we all in the same storm? Because what is clear today that the impacts of climate change in certain parts of the world are much more severe than in others. Yes, all regions are impacted, but not all regions are impacted equally. Take a continent like Africa, disproportionately impacted low credit rating, low borrowing capacity, hence low adaptation capacity. 
it's also in a storm, but the storm is more severe and they're less equipped to address the storm. So there's a profound moral injustice in the system which needs to be rectified as well. I think there is this climate apartheid, so to say, which is unfolding where the, the rich can still find safe havens somewhere at, at some point, but the poor, not just in developing countries, but also the poor in developed countries are basically bearing the brunt of um, the climate impacts. I think that that's been really so stark in this past year. The imperative to help each other, I think, has never been greater. Um, Patrick, you must come across amazing and innovative ways that you see that communities are adapting. You're sitting in a floating office (laughs) yourself right now. Um, What are some of your favorite examples that you've seen out there? One very favorite example is my daily walk from the city railway station in Rotterdam to the floating office. Because the city of Rotterdam is sort of a museum of climate adaptation. During my walk, you see so-called water squares where people play basketball or sports or, or, or picnic. But it is designed in a way when the heavy rainfall comes in, that square will store the water and release it in a very sort of gradual way. There are green spaces, green rooftops in Rotterdam. And then I end up in my, after my walk of 30 minutes in this indeed largest floating office in the world. It's a testimony of human imagination. There are these examples and illustrations and very practical solutions to address a changing climate. Climate adaptation sounds very abstract, conceptual, but in fact, it is building our cities differently, growing our food in a different way. I mean, the way we have developed our societies over centuries, millennia, was in a context of a particular climate. Well, actually, that climate system doesn't exist anymore. Hence, we need to adapt to that new reality. So that means for existing infrastructure, but clearly it also means for new infrastructure, which we will build in the years to come. Earlier this year, UNEP released its Adaptation Gap Report, and the Gap Report found that adaptation projects have been expanding on an exponential scale. Do you think it's fair to say that the world is is waking up to the importance of adaptation? The world is waking up to the reality that the climate is spinning out of control. I think the world is also waking up to the reality that adaptation is vital alongside reducing our carbon footprint. At the same time, what we see is that adaptation finance, right, the resources being made available for to invest in adaptation, whether it's from governments or from the private sector or from, from foundations, last year, partly due to the COVID crisis, in fact, dropped. The world is also realizing that we need a tenfold increase of adaptation finance in the years to come. We will see in the coming weeks in Glasgow during the the climate summit hosted by the United Kingdom, whether the world is not only waking up, but is also delivering of what it's supposed to deliver is the $100 billion annually on climate finance. That's a promise made in 2009 in Copenhagen. It was repeated in Paris in 2015. But what we see still up to today, that we're 20 billion short of the $100 billion on an annual basis. And what we also see within the current commitments, adaptation is still underfunded compared to um, mitigation finance. So the coming period in Glasgow, I think is also 
a reality check how serious governments and other partners are in addressing this climate emergency and whether they take it as an emergency indeed. Patrick, I think we're all looking to Glasgow um, with a lot of hope and a sense of a real sense of urgency that this is the time to act indeed. Patrick, I'd like to ask you, what is the single biggest topic in the adaptation world right now that nobody's talking about? One topic which I feel very passionate about, which seems rather remote in the in the, certainly in the political debates, is the importance of data. Since Paris, what you see in Africa, that service-based observations have decreased by 50%, right? With a lack of data, it's very difficult to do the planning right. If you don't have sufficient weather forecasts, a smallholder farmer on the continent finds it more difficult to know when to plant, when to harvest, because the rains are becoming more erratic. So I strongly hope that in Glasgow, but after Glasgow, there will be a realization that we need to invest in our foundations of the whole system, which is data. So service-based observation will inform hydromet services. Hydromet services will inform early warning. Early warning will then basically be the basis for farmers how to plant and harvest at the right uh, time. And it also gives an important contribution and input to digital climate advisory services. I feel very passionate about digital climate advisory services, particularly for smallholder farmers. In Africa, uh, to stay on the continent, half a billion people already have mobile phones. Should we not use those mobile phones more smartly that uh, services and data, it's happening here and there on the continent, but it has a massive opportunity to be upscaled in the years to come. Good for agricultural output, good for farm gate price, good for livelihoods, good for economic growth, and good for the climate. Absolutely. I think that power of the technologies that we're seeing between mobile phones, citizen science, earth observations, it's incredible and um, such an opportunity to harness that for good. Patrick, we'd like to ask you about where we can direct people to find out more about your work. Maybe a word on the Global Center on Adaptation, right? It was established a few years ago. Why is there another organization on adaptation? The underlying thinking was what the world needs. It needs to learn from practices which work and practices which do not work. And that's precisely what the Global Center on Adaptation is doing. We're called a solutions broker. It's focused on solutions, right? I mean, solutions need to be scaled and accelerated, and it needs to be done with other partners, partners such as the African Development, the World Bank, UNEP, others, private sector. They need to be brought together to find and implement these uh, solutions. The litmus test on whether we are successful and relevant or not is have we, in the coming years, improved the lives and livelihoods of people living on the front line? So where can you find us? Go to the website, Global Center on, on Adaptation. And what I really hope is uh, for those listeners for this particular podcast, that they also will engage on this agenda. There's lots of knowledge, lots of energy, lots of solutions out there. We need to bring it all together because this fight requires all of us to get into.
Patrick, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much, Marcus and, uh, and Liz and all the Thanks best. Thanks so much, Patrick. All the best. Let's go straight from that amazing floating office in Rotterdam and head to West Africa, the Gambia, to meet a real-life adaptation hero. My name is Auntie Rohe Sise. I live in a village called Kuntauru, CRR North. That's in the middle of the country, inland and alongside the River Gambia. I work with the Department of Forestry. I train women in tree nursery management because, you know, now we, the forest is being depleted. So I train them so that uh, you can use one or two firewood to cook your whole meal. So that will help us to minimize the use of firewood here in my community. It was great to hear about Mrs. Ciso's work in forestry, but it was her work with early warning weather forecasts that I really wanted to speak to her about. Early warnings are crucial to allow communities to prepare in advance for extreme weather events. So a project was set up by the UN Environment Programme and the Gambian government to build nine weather stations across the country and to improve the mobile phone networks to get the message out. Even then, the difficulty is making sure those messages reach vulnerable communities. And that is where Mrs. Cisse comes in. The project has given us radios because we are connected to Brikamabaya radio station. We normally receive the forecast around 6 o'clock in the evening and 8 o'clock night. So Brikamabaya radio always sends us weather forecast telling us that this is what is going to happen at this time of the day, if heavy rain is coming tomorrow, they will going to alert us. And if at all a windstorm is coming, they are going to alert us. So the time I received this message from Birikamaba Radio, we also have a WhatsApp group. Every village we have a participant's number in that in that WhatsApp group. So I will try to pass this information through the WhatsApp page so that everyone can hear what is going on. In the village here, we have a committee, so we also alert the fishermen who are going to the, to the river for fishing, we alert them, telling them that let them not go into the river tomorrow. By this time, there's going to be a heavy windstorm or a heavy rainfall. And the farmers also, we advise them not to go to the field. The hardest, we also advise them, even the beekeepers, because it is risky to go to the field by that time. And also we use the motor bicycle to go around sensitizing people. One of the important things we do is that when we hear a weather forecast, we have a, a red flag, we use that red flag, put that red flag at the riverside. And when we are communicated that there is no danger, we take a white cloth and put it at the riverside. So these are local means of communicating. When you go to the riverside, you want to go to, fishermen want to go to the to river. When they saw a white cloth, they know this is peace. White means peace. And red, red means danger. One of the things that I love about your work that you're doing is that you're also using song and, and dance to communicate these early warnings. Could you tell us a little bit about that? We have formed a drama group and we go to the communities, we play dramas, we sing songs, 
explaining them the dangers of uh, climate change, the adaptation measures and mitigation. So these are some of the measures we explain to the community, telling them climate change is real. And to avoid ourselves to climate dangers, early warning has come. So you're sharing these these adaptation solutions through song and, and dance and theatre. Was there a reason why you chose dance and theatre as a way to communicate these messages? Yes, drama is very important in our community. When we told people we are coming to your area to make a drama, everybody will be interested. So we will have the majority to communicate. When we play our drama, people will know what causes climate change and what are the dangers. We don't even stop in at that. We also organize um, a radio talk show about early warning system. I'm curious to know how, how life has changed for the farmers and fishermen since you've been giving early warning. It's very improved and impressive. Before this uh, early warning, we realized that people don't have any knowledge on climate change and early warning. And too many deaths occur, especially in the rivers. Because you just jump from your house, you go to farm or you go to, uh, to the river to look for fish, these fishermen. Uh, it's terrible. A windstorm could find you there or a, a heavy rain could find you there. So you never know. So too many deaths occur in the river by that time. But thanks to God, when this project early warning has come and they train us, especially early warning alerts, what to do before this comes. And when they connect us also with the radios, so this helps us a lot in our community. Life has changed and life has improved. So now you're no longer seeing the deaths in, in the river, is that right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Some people even, before they go to the river, when they didn't hear any news from, from me, they come to my house, ask me, so what is the present condition about the river? Can we go? So I told them yes or no. So when I told them, let them not go, they will not. It has totally changed uh, our system. Before, That's a lot amazing. of deaths occur, and now, definitely, it has reduced totally. And these deaths were mainly from, from the storms, right? Yes. When a heavy storm finds you in the river, no way, you can't escape. What are your dreams for your children? What, what do you hope for your children in the future? Yeah, anyway, Marcus, I'm from a farming community and uh, I have three children. They are going to school. They are young kids. So in the weekends, we normally go to our nursery. We raise three nursery. We raise seedlings. But my children, I involve them in the activities, what I am doing really. So this is what I want to have my legacy to be. Amazing. Thank you so much. You've been such a great guest. That's very good. Thank you, Marcos. Mrs. Cisse really is an adaptation hero, isn't she? She really is. And 
Hearing Mrs. Cisse, I couldn't help but think of what Patrick Vercoyen said earlier about the importance of good data and information. Here is Mrs. Cisse putting Patrick's words into action, working tirelessly to make sure that climate information is shared with the people who need it most. I'm sure Patrick will be delighted to hear that. Thanks for listening. There are more Adaptation success stories in our other episodes, so please do listen to those, subscribe and share. We're Liz Mullen-Bernhardt and Marcus Neild, and you can find out more about our organisation, the UN Global Adaptation Network, in the show notes. This has been Resilience. Keep adapting. Penny Dale is the producer, 